So, what I would like to talk about today is samadhi. This is a word some of you will be familiar with and some uh, less so. It's a Pali word, S-A-M-A-D-H-I. I particularly want to talk about it in a way and set up hopefully a little bit of an orientation or an intention for, for the whole three weeks here, for the whole retreat, a little bit. So this word samadhi is usually translated as concentration, and that will do as a sort of first first translation. It usually translates as concentration. And it's interesting, as one of the factors of the path that we're interested in developing in, what our relationship what is our relationship with the development of concentration of samadhi and often it's an area where we just kind of assume oh, I'm rubbish at that and we kind of think well all right there's other stuff in the path too so all right or it's we have a relationship with it where it's it's a bit fraught or even a lot fraught it's a, it's it's an area where we tend to judge ourselves and judge well, uh, well there's a lot of anxiety around whether we're developing it or how well we're developing it. So I want to really explore this whole area, particularly its relevance in terms of of this retreat, of metta practice, and as I say, set up an orientation for the whole retreat. When, a few years ago, we were kind of conceiving of this retreat, one of the factors that really convinced me that it was a good idea to do it was that there are basically three major fruits to get out of a retreat like this. And the first is the development of loving-kindness and compassion, the developing those qualities in the heart. And that's a beautiful thing. It's an indispensable and lovely thing for a human being to develop that. The second was this piece about understanding how that leads to awakening, actually using loving-kindness and compassion to move towards awakening, and understanding emptiness and that kind of liberation of the heart, liberation of the mind. And the third one is the development of samadhi, the development of concentration. And when I was sort of thinking about it, I realized, well, basically, at least some of that is going to happen for everyone. And it's... uh, it's a no. You can't lose uh, on this retreat. It's you, you <laughs> uh, it's a win-win-win situation because all of that's there and it's available. Traditionally, in the tradition, actually in the commentaries from the tradition, this practice of loving kindness and compassion are just regarded as, first of all, a good idea to develop loving kindness and compassion. So something lovely to develop. But secondly, as something that leads to concentration. And this whole factor of awakening was kind of, was reckoned that that wasn't part of, of what was going on. The thrust of this retreat is actually finding a way back in of that. So, samadhi, this word. In other traditions it has different meanings, but... Usually in this tradition it's translated as concentration, as I said. And that's a fine translation. It doesn't give enough of a breadth of what it really means, enough um, either breadth or depth, this word concentration. Either, when we, when we hear the word concentration, either we tend to think 
kind of making the mind small and cramming it into a small place and sort of shoving it there and keeping it there. Uh, or something, something concentrated uh, you know, laundry detergents. A lot of stuff in a very small space. Or this sense of keeping something with something. So I'm concentrating on the breath. Or I'm concentrating on that. Just keeping it with. And certainly that keeping with is, is very much a part of what samadhi means. Staying steady with something. But it's not all of it. And in a way it might be better to keep the word in its original language. Keep it in its original language to get more of the sense of the breadth of what it means. And, and actually the beauty of what it means. Something very, very beautiful in it. So we could throw some more words out. Certainly, steadiness of the mind with something. Collectedness. There's a real collectedness. The, the mind, the awareness feels collected, not scattered, collected. Unification is a really good word. So particularly unification of the body and the mind. And in this case, the body, the mind, the heart. There's a real kind of sense of the body and the mind unifying, coming together, being one. As, as the samadhi develops. Depth of meditation is a, a word one of my teachers used to use a lot, and I actually quite like that. There's a real sense of deepening into something as we develop this. One of the other factors with samadhi is refinement. So the consciousness is actually being refined. And this is this is kind of an interesting one. If we take the other extreme, what's on the other extreme of samadhi? Well, something like a tantrum. Is as far, far on the other extreme as you could get a tantrum. It's not a very refined state of consciousness. Things are pretty gross, usually pretty black and white. Uh, it's not very refined. Letting go of that, the mind can move into more and more refinement. And one discovers, as one deepens in samadhi, more, more and more refinement to the mind, the consciousness. So we certainly can talk about discrete states of, of depth of samadhi and this jhana and that jhana. I'm actually not going to go into that today. Rather to regard it as a kind of continuum, that the mind can move in this continuum of deepening, of unifying, of refining. And this is a lifelong exploration. It's something that there's actually no bottom to it, I don't think. Uh, we can just keep deepening and refining this. And to me, to be alive on the path and have that aliveness on the path, it's actually lifelong. We keep keep exploring this. Something very lovely there. Keep exploring the potential depths of consciousness. This is available to us uh, as human beings, as meditators, to just go on this journey into the depths of consciousness. Samadhi also brings with it, as it deepens, I'm talking really about a a very big picture now, it brings an expansion of perception. So the typical everyday perceptions that we go about our lives governed by, I'm here, you're there, sitting in a room together, da-da-da, that begins to be expanded. The usual sense of things begins to be expanded. And through that expansion comes a kind of receptivity, very slowly, very gradually, sometimes suddenly. A receptivity meaning 
beginnings of an opening to another sense of things comes a deep sense of rest as the samadhi deepens. The whole being, the body, the mind, the emotions, the whole being finds a, a really deep rest. We find that as the samadhi develops over our, over our life, really, that we're actually more available to life and to others and to ourselves. There's more capacity in the being to be available. And there's a real freshness of discovery that comes with it, freshness of perception. We're able to look at life in very, uh, actually radically different ways, new ways, uncover different ways of looking. Usually with samadhi, this word concentration, let's keep it in the the Pali or the Sanskrit. Usually with samadhi, we think in terms of one object, of keeping the mind with one object. So in our case, the metta could be compassion, could be one of the other brahmaviharas, could be the breath. We tend to think of the samadhi deepening through staying over and over with one object. But actually samadhi, the word, is even more general. And one could have a very open kind of vipassana practice. And there's actually still a lot of samadhi there because there's still that collectedness, unification, deepening, etc., Usually, our mind moves in relation to objects of experience, experiences that come up, but it moves in ways that are not that helpful. We move grasping <coughs> or rejecting or anxious about something or, or um, aversive to something. When the mind is in a relationship to experience that you could say is open and non-entangled, whether that's in working with the breath or doing a metta practice or an open vipassana practice, when that's what's going on, then that's the state of samadhi. It's open non-entanglement. And we think about the possible skills that a human being can develop. I mean, human beings are quite amazing when we when we reflect on this almost infinite range of skills that a human being can can develop and some of them are just breathtaking you know you think about what it takes to to play a piano concerto really well or to write a piano concerto or 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 uh, david beckham when he <laughs> curls the ball like that um amazing amazing and the the range is extraordinary I don't know if you did this when you were a kid. You you can pile coins on your elbow. Did you ever do this? And then you do that and you catch them. Or you hope you try and catch them. The world record, I think, is like 104 10p pieces. So it's quite amazing. The person probably really put a lot of time and effort <laughs> developing that skill. Amazing. Dharmically speaking... <laughs> question is, which skills are worth developing? What's, what's really worth developing? So I actually very much appreciate David Beckham's, but, but really, for ourselves, in our lifetime, we have limited time in, in this life, limited time, our time will run out. We have limited energy. What's worth developing as a skill? What's worth developing? 
So we often underestimate the power and the importance and the, the significance of samadhi. And the Buddha, if you just open some of the texts over and over and over, going on about, please develop samadhi, develop samadhi, develop this, you can do it, develop that skill. In, I don't know if it's fair to say, but in, in the West so far, in the Dharma, the Dharma is very young, and so far kind of haven't really reached into the potential of this side of the practice, of this area of the practice. It tends to get um, viewed in the way of having a very microscopic concentration on something. So really being able to look at the fine detail, that's not what samadhi means, and the Buddha never meant it that way. So it's more in terms of this unification, this deepening, this coming together and collecting of the mind. And with that, as again, over a lifetime or over a retreat, as this develops, it brings with it a tremendous well-being. Uh, really, the, the fruits of samadhi are a very deep sense of well-being. Healing. Healing to the body, healing to the emotions, healing to the mind. The quality of life, as the mind brightens and unifies, uh, quality of life is actually perceptibly improved. brings a sense of steadiness into the life. And so if one is involved in long-term creative projects, say writing, piano concerto, whatever it is, it takes actually a lot of steadiness of the mind, a lot of samadhi. You need to show up every day and do that and do that and do that. Any kind of creative project, whatever it's artistic or non-artistic. Or if one's involved in service, in the active expression in one's work or volunteering, whatever it is, or just with one's friends and family, the active expression of loving kindness and compassion needs a kind of steadiness. And it's samadhi in the long run that gives us that. Gives us that kind of uh, long-term steadiness to stay in there in terms of service and creativity, etc. Also in terms of insights, that there's something about samadhi being the best possible soil for insights to take root in. How many times have we been on retreat? You've all been on retreat before. How many times have you been on retreat and said, ah, oh, I really understood that. Really, I really see the impermanence. I really, I really get this pattern that I do over and over. I really see it so clearly. And the retreat ends and, you know, a day later it's just gone. It's just gone. It was just a memory. Samadhi, it's like good soil for a seed. Can, it can take root and actually grow, and the insights become workable, livable. Uh, I think it was the first year we ran this retreat, and at a certain point, two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through or something, one of the retreatants said to me, it's quite. There's some nice samadhi now. You know, I've been here two weeks or whatever it was, and 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 with some states of of nice collectedness and brightness and luminosity and you know concentration. He said, but actually, what I think is that I'd be better off not having good concentration, because when I leave here in my life, my mind is scattered and I'm busy and and I want to learn how to apply the metta when my mind is how it usually is. And it's a bit unrealistic to sort of just be in these nice states and expect the matter to apply. And so, actually, there was a lot of integrity in what he was saying, but there's something about samadhi that allows things to take root at a cellular level. 
as the mind collects. So the the meta too, as well as insight, can kind of take root in the being, permeate the cells, become something that's almost second nature in the cells as the samadhi deepens. So yes, to learn to apply the metta and the compassion when the mind is scattered and it's not settled down and we, and we feel fragmented and not unified. But there's something about spending time with metta when the mind does feel very unified. It gets into the being, some very cellular level. As someone pointed out today, we show up on retreat and we, we as I said this morning, actually, what we notice is the opposite. I want to focus the mind, and I, I, I'm all over the place. The mind's drifting here and there, and I'm off. And this is normal. This is very normal. We have a lifetime habit of not paying that much good attention. And that's okay. It's okay. But we can uh, begin to change that and begin to work on it. So just the steadiness of showing up for sitting, for walking, for sitting, for walking. The steadiness, the continuity of the practice. Can, can you see that that's already the beginning of samadhi? That the steadiness itself in the outer form is a kind of samadhi. Do you, do you see? It's, it's, it's expressing a steadiness. That steadiness begins to percolate down into the being. And so the mind itself, the, the heart, the, the, the being begins to be more steady. It's the beginnings of samadhi. Just show up. However one feels. So this goes for outside practice. You get up one day and, you know, not on retreat and or here on retreat and you don't feel so good. I'll, I'll skip my sitting this morning. I'm a bit tired or I'm not feeling well. Understandable. There's something about the steadiness, no matter how one feels, that gives the steadiness and gives a strength as well. So strength is also an aspect of samadhi. Strength of mind, a strength that's pliable. I'm not not talking about something rigid or brittle, but a deep strength, a, 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 a soft strength in a way. And again, that comes into the being, begins to come into the being, just by virtue of showing up, practicing whatever we feel like. And... In the practice, sitting or walking, returning, just returning to the phrases, returning to the body, returning to the object, over and over and over. Again, it's embodying that steadiness, it's embodying that uh, strength of commitment. That will find its its way into the being. And, you know, in time, staying more with the phrases, staying more with the object. So, one of the fruits of samadhi, and, and I'm talking about long, long term and in a lifetime, you, you will probably notice on this retreat, definitely. Again, please remember, what I'm talking about today, it might feel like, well, I'm nowhere near that. It's the beginning of the retreat. I'm talking, hopefully, something you can kind of keep in your back of your mind, at least in the back, for the whole retreat. One of the fruits of samadhi is happiness. Happiness, joy, and... Buddha talked over and over about this and the importance of it, the importance of it. Recently, in the last couple of years, there was a study done of meditators and found that meditators were actually happier than non-meditators. There was something, if I get this right, the right prefrontal cortex was 
more active, which is your positive emotions, and the left was less active, which is your neck. I'm not sure if that's right way around, but something like that. And interestingly, what they found was generally meditators were happier, but meditators who'd done at least 10,000 hours <laughs> were there's some kind of significant jump in the, in the graph there. <laughs> so 10,000 hours, and the whole thing leaps. So I don't know how quick you are at arithmetic, but 10,000 hours is quite a lot. <laughs> it's a lot more than you would even do on this retreat. But um, just to say, hang in there. <laughs> uh, but definitely, definitely, in the Buddha, you know, millennia ago, is very clear, samadhi in the long term leads to happiness. No question about it. But he said something very interesting as well, and it's the kind of the reverse. And someone asked him, okay, so samadhi is a good idea. What's the thing that most feeds samadhi, that, 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 that the most important contributor to samadhi? Without blinking, he said, happiness. So that's interesting. Happiness comes from samadhi, but happiness feeds samadhi. And this is very, very significant for us as meditators. We need, and particularly on a retreat like this, we need to kind of take care as much as possible, as much as possible, of a kind of baseline foundation of our sense of well-being. Nourish our sense of happiness. Okay? So I'm not talking about any fireworks. I'm just talking about inclining the mind to a sense of well-being, of nourishment. So how do we go about that? Can we be on the retreat in a way that's open? So sometimes, very understandably, we come on retreat and because of what we've heard or seen or just get into a groove. We do this and we kind of shrink down the awareness. And we say, right, I'm really going to apply myself. And it shrinks down. Can there be, and please experiment with this, a kind of opening and receptivity and an inclining the mind towards appreciation. Okay, so there are all kinds of things right here, right now, today, in this retreat, to appreciate. Many, many things. We have uh, eight wonderful managers looking after us, cooking for us, taking care of us. We have the beauty of the grounds, the building, the nature. We have the teachings. We have each other. You know, I think Catherine said on the on the opening talk, you know, we can get very much into this eyes down kind of thing. What would it be, please experiment, to look around? Who's here? Who am I practicing with? Who are these lovely people dedicating themselves, supporting me in my practice? How wonderful, because how much more difficult it would be if we were here alone, one was here alone. Have a look around at lunchtime. You know, sometimes you want to be a bit more in, inner and it's appropriate to be with one's own experience. But other times, open up. Can there be an appreciation of the beauty of what's going on here and, and the, the, the loveliness of everyone practicing together, trying together, supporting each other in the silence, in the schedule and all that? Gratitude. So feeding gratitude, and t- taking a little time in the day to incline the mind this way, and to think everything that's helped for you to even be here, three weeks out of your life to be here. Gratitude for that. 
what else feeds this this uh, kind of nurtures this base level of happiness? Maybe simplicity and sort of letting go into the simplicity of being here. Love of the Dharma, you know, for some people this is really strong. Just loving to be able to practice, to have this time to practice, to be able to hear the teachings, to be able to be in an environment brings brings joy. Nature, I mentioned this this morning, so please do take some time to open to nature. Go out, take it in, be nourished by it. So over time, over time, gradually, the samadhi, the collectedness, the unification, the concentration begins to deepen, begins to deepen. This does not happen ever in a linear way. In other words, if someone comes into an interview and they just report this you know, steady, smooth ascent into the, the ethereal realms of bliss uh, without any ups and downs, it's not realistic. It doesn't happen. It's going to happen in a very non-linear way, very up and down, and that's just how human consciousness works. So talking this morning about the hindrances and the sort of very typical challenges we face, learn to expect the waves. Okay, just they're a given. They're a given. Learn to expect expect them. Learn to accept them, meaning accept that they're there. It doesn't mean to accept them. It doesn't mean to kind of lie down and let them steamroll over you and dictate you know the whole course of your consciousness for two or three days. Um, but to accept that they're there. They're a feature of consciousness. Sometimes it's a matter of just seeing them out. Just, just be patient, just keep plugging away and one sees them out. Other times, and gave a lot of possibilities this morning, of ways of working with them and really being quite active. So sometimes it's just seeing them out, sometimes really working quite actively. Very important, though, in the context of accepting them. So learning to work with. And the two things, the two general points I mentioned this morning, if possible, not being taken for a ride, recognizing this is what's going on. Ah, it's such and such a hindrance. Aha, okay. And not getting so, in a way, seduced or infatuated by the story and the content of what it seems that's going on. If it's craving or aversion or whatever it is, or the doubt. Seeing it for what it is, recognizing it. Huge. Half the battle is right there. And not taking them personally. So not judging oneself because of the presence of a hindrance. This is huge. Once we judge ourselves because a hindrance is there, we're adding uh, fuel to the fire of the hindrance. Not to take them personally. Can we have an attitude of kindness? So that this whole retreat is, is kind of imbued as much as possible with an attitude of kindness. And then the hindrance has come up, it's difficult, we're in a difficult stretch, a couple of hours that are difficult, half a day that's difficult. How much kindness can we meet that with? Not reactivity, but kindness.
anyone who's doing a practice like this, like a metta practice or working with the breath or compassion or some kind of cultivation practice, or anyone who hears about a practice like this, maybe not anyone, but 99% of people, will often have at least one of four objections, if not all four. And it can seem like one begins to do a practice like this, and the whole idea of staying with something, and the whole idea of samadhi seems like, "Mm, maybe it's not such a good idea after all. And it can feel very difficult. So I want to go into, I want to go into this and explore it, and hopefully, hopefully just look at these with with a bit of intelligence and, and um, reconsider them. So they are, when we give ourselves to cultivating samadhi, oftentimes what comes up is a sense of tightness. We actually, in the process, we actually feel quite tight. You may have probably discovered that already you're trying to stay with something you're trying to, and it can feel really tight the, the very effort to stay with something can feel tight tightening a ho- the whole notion of working towards a goal a goal of deepening my concentration or developing samadhi or developing metta and won't I get into some striving around that these are legitimate, very legitimate concerns. I just want to explore them a little bit. Tightness, relationship with goals and striving for goals. Attachment. If this leads to happiness or if samadhi feels good, won't I maybe get attached there and get stuck there? And the last one, suppression. Is it possible that through this just you know repeating phrases to myself or just staying with one thing, and maybe even feeling good in doing that, that I'm actually suppressing some emotion or some issue in the being, in the psyche that needs to come up. Because someone brought that up this morning. And these four, tightness, relationship to goals and striving, attachment, possibility of attachment, and and the question of suppression. Are we suppressing? So I want to go into this a little bit. These come up, they will come up, they're going to come up, these questions and these doubts. And a lot of people are going to feel put off uh, by, uh, as that comes up. So we're practicing samadhi and something comes up like this and we think, oh, I should, I should leave all that. I should leave this matter, I should leave the samadhi, and I'll just go to an open practice of being with what is. Not trying to do anything, just being with what is, or just being, or whatever. And this is unbelievably common. I mean, almost everyone who, 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 who goes about doing a practice like this will have that quite strong inclination at one point too much work, or I don't really think this is right, let me let me just uh, just be, go to an open vipassana practice. So I want to go into this. First one, tightness. How can we do this practice and not get so tight? So, softness, in a way the opposite of tightness, softness is actually a factor of samadhi. So when we talk about what does samadhi mean, it actually has softness in it, it has a kind of 
non-rigidity, non-tightness in it. It's part of the quality of samadhi. One of the ways that's very important to to prevent tightness taking too much hold, and it will come up, you will be dealing at times with tightness, there's no question about it as you try this practice, no question. One of them is to make the mindfulness a bit bigger, meaning make the range of the awareness a bit bigger. So, said at least once in the instructions, the Buddha says, sensitive to the whole body. So can we have as very much a part of our practice an awareness that includes the whole body and kind of to be anchored in that. And as well in this breadth of mindfulness an awareness of how am I feeling about the practice right now? What What's my emotional relationship with the practice right now? Am I bored? Am I trying too hard? Am I disinterested? Am I striving? The body sense can reflect this relationship that we have with the practice in the moment. When we get too tight, what happens? You actually feel it in the body. So part of the art of meditation, part of the art of deepening samadhi, is actually to have this kind of background awareness of breadth of the body awareness and be sensitive to it. It will reflect what's going on in terms of the relationship. Does this make sense? As the samadhi deepens, it's actually the body becomes really, really central. It's very important. The body sense is actually crucial. That's why I keep saying that sensitive to the whole body, and the body is really at the anchor of, of what we're doing. And as the samadhi deepens, the body sense actually changes so it gets a little bit more spacious or more refined or more open or less defined. And that's all part of over time, over time, of the samadhi deepening. But we can work with this tightness and be in the sensitivity to the body, be aware of when it's there, and then just relax the body. And just relax the body. It's part of the, the big picture, the art of the samadhi, of the meditation. It's sensitive to the whole body. Sometimes we go about this practice and it's very much like rolling up the sleeves and may I be at ease. <laughs> it's not going to happen that way. It's not going to happen. Best intentions may be there, you know, but it's not, there needs to be a real gentleness and relaxation in the approach. Gritting the teeth, you know, the, sometimes it's appropriate, but more often it, it's a real art. This, all this stuff is a real art. It's very delicate. It's a very delicate art, very subtle art. So, again, can there be kindness to oneself in this? We drift off, okay, watch that point. Am I judging that? Am I getting too tight in response to the fact that I drifted off? Can there be kindness imbuing the whole thing? Gentleness imbuing the whole thing. And sometimes there's just going to be tightness. There's just going to be tightness and you're gonna, you will feel should go to Vipassana practice much, just be open. Um, sometimes you just have to you try to relax it, you're being as gentle as you can, it's just, okay, just accept the tightness. And just to have that sense of kindness around it and accepting of it. And it will change. 
But we can be sensitive to the effort that we put in. So we can, in this body sensitivity, you can feel when there's too much effort because the body reflects it. Tightness in the shoulders or the belly gets tight or something just cramps up a little bit. And be sensitive to that as part of the practice and relax it. So part of the developing the art is, is deepening this sensitivity and subtlety of attention to effort levels. And we learn oh, a bit more, you know, a bit more foot on the gas, a bit off, a bit more off. Part of the art, play with it, experiment, bring it in rather than leaving it out. In a way, in, in particular in the context of meta practice, Catherine, I spoke to Catherine last night a couple of times, and uh, she told me she spoke a bit about to oneself, the meta to oneself, giving and receiving love. So this is also connected with the effort. Sometimes we might need to move more into a receptive mode, receiving, and that can very much help with the tightness as well, and generally with the meta. If we're too tight, too tight with the effort, too efforting, it can have the opposite effect of what we intend. And the mind is actually squeezed, and not a particularly great image, but it's a bit like a half-peeled banana, and you're squeezing the bottom end, and the banana, well, either it crushes it, or it, <laughs> or it flies off. You actually, tr- in the best intentions, you're trying to be too tight, you're actually ending up being too tight with the mind, and it has the opposite effect, the mind drifts off more. more thoughts and more following thoughts. Or sometimes we're too loose and there's a kind of just a dullness that comes in, a kind of sinking of the consciousness that comes in. To be aware of this, it's all part of the subtlety and you can, you can be aware of it and you can play with it. It's a very delicate process. Okay, so that first objection, tightness. Second possible one, is this this around goals and we could really... Gosh, I talk all day about this, but sometimes, or quite often, it, it, there's the temptation to think goals are not spiritual. It's there's nowhere to get, and we may have heard that, and it might really resonate with us. That there's nothing to do, no, nothing to get, nowhere, and no one to be, nothing to become, etc. It can be very powerful, and yes there's definitely something to that. There's definitely a depth that needs to be explored there. But don't be too quick with it. Don't be too quick. And to, to bring one's whole integrity and intelligence to this question and honesty. Our life is full of goals. Full of goals our life is. So at 5.30 will be tea time. And the bell will go. And then my goal is going to be in probably most of you, is going to be to get to the tea and, and get some soup uh, down the throat. That's my goal. It's not a big deal. It's not a big... Our life is full of goals. Right now, my goal is, you know, to, to communicate something about th- this this piece in, in a way that's as helpful and clear as possible. And, and your goal is, you know, to try and not fall asleep. <laughs> Hopefully. Um... Uh, our life is full of goals. Be very careful with this area. Yes, non-duality, and as the retreat goes on, we'll be talking a lot about this area of non-duality and, and, and emptiness and stuff. But to really understand it, to really understand what, what it means, non-duality, 
it's hard to really understand any depth without a depth of samadhi, funnily enough. And it's actually going through all this and this efforting and even a notion of goals with the samadhi that actually brings a whole reorientation in terms of dualities and goals. Because usually people are too quick with saying, oh, it's all non-dual, there's nothing to get. But they fall back on a default uh, perception, default understanding of the way things are. And it's still, I'm here and this is what's going on for me. The mind is cloudy or the mind is like this or whatever. And that's okay. And that's where the non-duality comes. A deeper understanding of non-duality, which can come out of samadhi practice and metta practice, is that actually there's no way things are. The mind is not like it appears to be right now. It's not clouded. It's not clear. It's not deep. It's not shallow. I'm not sitting here. You're not sitting there. This is not Gaia House. This is not a meditation retreat. It can be hard to understand that without having gone through the, the depth of samadhi. So there's, there's a depth of understanding non-duality. And I think it's important to, to, um, to uncover that, not to settle for something that's well, in a way, cheaper. I think in the opening talk, John mentioned this word, Brahma-vihara. So Brahma means divine or sublime, and vihara means dwelling. Dwelling. So these practices, loving-kindness and compassion, are really dwellings for the heart. The heart, the being, the consciousness dwells in in a space, in an inner space of of beauty, of sublimity, of, of something that feels divine. And more and more, as the retreat goes by, you will get a sense of that, of, of a real dwelling place for the consciousness, for the mind, for the heart. So, some Brahma-viharas, m- uh, metta, compassion, joy, and equanimity, they are divine abidings, divine dwellings, Brahma-viharas. Samadhi too, as the samadhi deepens, it becomes a dwelling for the consciousness. When we think about where does my consciousness, my mind, usually dwell, when we actually look at that, it's often not in the greatest of places. <laughs> Oftentimes it's not actually dwelling anywhere at all. It's all over the place. It's not. It's not. It's it's not abiding anywhere. It's literally just pulled here and then pulled there. And whatever it is that's sort of making the biggest impression is where it's dwelling. Very unsettled, un not dwelling. Or and maybe even worse is we're actually dwelling in something that's really not very helpful for us. Self-criticism, self-judgment, irritability at others, a whole, a whole range of difficult states that, sadly, but, but realistically, human beings can kind of make a home out of. We can get so used to this over our life and over the decades, so used to kind of, as I was saying this morning, the groove kind of being one of unhelpfulness and unhappiness something not so helpful becomes our dwelling. And it's almost second nature to us. So part of the metta practice I was touching on this morning is actually replacing replacing that negative dwelling with, with a bit more positive, or a lot more positive dwelling. So oftentimes we find ourselves with a lot of thought, and it's oftentimes a lot of self-critical thought, a self-judgmental thought, or judging others or a situation. What if we use use that energy of thought, which is already zipping around, 
and we use the metta, which is thought, it's thought energy, and we're just redirecting the thought energy, replacing the unskillful thought with skillful thought. I remember a period, I can't remember how long it was, was it? maybe a year or two years or something, when I, I just gave myself just to metta practice for, for that time. So all, all my formal practice, and as much as possible throughout the day, uh, you know, in the shower, walking down the street, whatever it was, just metta, metta, metta. And uh, absolutely one, wonderful uh, thing to do. At the beginning of that period, what was quite interesting was I would be walking uh, on the way to work down the street and would be trying to do the metta. And the inclination that would be there was, well, I don't want to kind of fill my mind with that. I want to let my mind be creative and, and, and let, let, my, let things come to me spontaneously. But then I had a kind of closer second look at kind of, well, what was coming up in my mind if I just let it be? And it wasn't really that creative. <laughs> How many, you know, most thoughts thought them at least a thousand times before how many how many thoughts do you actually have that you've never thought before how many thoughts do you actually have that are truly helpful i mean when you really look at it it's not that many and so once i began to see that it's like i'm fine replacing all that junk with <laughs> with the meta and 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 the mind actually slowly it becomes less enticed by all this other stuff that can f- we can feel so, oh, I need to think that, I, I just need to think that, or I need to let my mind go in some way. It becomes less enticing. The hindrances and the seduction of the hindrances and their story, like I said this morning, what they build up, becomes gradually less enticing as the samadhi develops, very gradually. And the samadhi, the collectedness, the simplicity of mind becomes something we, we love and we're drawn to. And it's, it's really an acquired taste. It's, it's so interesting. Delightful as it is, it's still an acquired taste for, for almost everyone. So we can be on retreat and, you know, you're doing some walking meditation and a car arrives or someone comes out to do some walking meditation and you're doing the walking meditation and you can, if the mindfulness is there, you can catch this moment of wanting wanting to see who's that, who's arriving, who's, who's going, what's happening. <laughs> and if the mindfulness is bright enough, is present enough, it's just, you can just say, just, just, I don't need to know, I don't need to know. Does it really matter what kind of car is, is coming up the drive? Does it really matter who's coming out or going from the walking meditation? It does. I don't need to know that. And you can, you can begin to catch it. Or in the sitting sometimes, you, you start to think something, and you're halfway through a thought, and you can actually just catch it. And as, as the samadhi develops, you can begin to catch this. You just catch Do I actually need to finish this thought? <laughs> I'm halfway through. Is it really, is there going to be that much payoff from thinking it? So as, as it develops, you can begin to catch this and just let things go, just let things go. Samadhi and letting go, two sides of the same coin. Two sides of the same coin. It's not obvious at first. As the samadhi develops over, for most people, over over quite a while, but you know, certainly possible in this retreat, this is why I'm mentioning this, but again, saying some things today that will apply for the whole retreat. For some people, 
the samadhi develops and something begins to, I don't know how to put it, arise in the experience. And it's called piti. Some of you may have heard this word, it's another Pali word. P-I-T-I, piti. And it really means any pleasant physical sensation that arises, you could say, from meditation. So anything at all could be just a feeling of warmth or comfort or uh, sometimes tingling or lightness or pleasure or heart opening or um, the rising feeling, opening, expanding. can be a whole range of, of what it actually is in terms of experience, but also a range of how strong it is. So some, sometimes for some people it's unbearably strong. It's uh, really uh, like a lightning bolt of ecstasy, just it's too much. Uh, not, I don't know how common that is, you know, statistically, I don't know, but it can happen. And the other extreme is something really not that remarkable, that you're not going to be rushing to write a postcard to your friend saying, guess what, what happened to me today. It's just some nice feeling of, of comfort and well-being and pleasure in the body. But all of that is PT. Sometimes it gets translation, translated as rapture, sometimes ecstasy, which is a little strong, but can't give me bliss. It arises partly from the samadhi, partly you can think of it as the mind just, it's not, not a very good analogy, but the mind rubbing against the object over and over, so rubbing and rubbing against the meta, against the phrases, and there's a kind of sparks that come from that. It's okay. <laughs> as the mind is less scattered, it's like a, uh, it's actually literally th- throwing out less energy. And we go tomorrow, yesterday, worried about this, worried about that. You're throwing away energy all the time. The mind gets less scattered and it's actually collecting energy. And that energy begins to manifest. It begins to manifest physically. For some people, I'm just mentioning this as something that may come into your experience. Not a big deal if it doesn't at all. Not a big deal if it doesn't. Not a big deal if it does. But it's worth knowing about. Sometimes it comes out of interest when the interest is there really interested in this moment of metta or this, this moment of experience it can can lead to this sometimes it just comes when because there's energy there and there's just energy and it's beginning to express PT also comes it has a lot to do with openness openness of being so usually um, we tend in, in the tradition is tend tended to, to, to regard PT as coming out of concentration and certainly it does the more steady we are, it can come out of that. But actually, PT is interesting. It has more to do with openness of being. And so that's why some people, when they listen to music, there's openness of being, and, and something happens. Or you're in nature, and you're just there, and you're open, and there's, there's a feeling coming in, sometimes. Non-entanglement is a good word. So when the mind... When the consciousness is not so entangled with things, then that allows this PT, can allow the PT. When there's metta there, it's actually a state of non entanglement. There's kindness there. We're not embroiled in experience in the moment in an, in an unhelpful way, and it can allow this. Now, if we're talking about samadhi in a retreat like this, you actually want to encourage that. So any kind of comfortable, pleasant feeling 
And this may seem like, wow, that's never going to happen on the third, second day, or whatever it is of the retreat. So I don't know what you're talking about. Again, I'm pointing something to the whole retreat. But it's actually something you want to encourage. So any kind of pleasantness, sense of well-being, sense of comfort, pleasure in the body, physical, you want to encourage. It's part of the practice, and you want to kind of mix it in with what's going on. And PT is actually just the first stage of, of other stages in joy and peacefulness and stuff. We won't go into that. Here's where the third of the possible objections come in. Well, well, if that feels good, might I not get attached to that? And that would be bad. It actually doesn't lead to attachment in the long term. It might if one just has one or, <coughs> one or two isolated experiences. But as one develops it over time, it does not lead to attachment. The pleasure of meditation does not lead to attachment. It does not lead to attachment. So, if there's any kind of, even if it's unremarkable sense of enjoying the practice, really let yourself enjoy it. See if you can bring that in and mix it in with what's going on. Open to the enjoyment, however it is. I remember one of my teachers, Ajahn Jeff, uh, saying, actually, you know what? Go ahead and get attached to it. Get attached. And I'd never heard anything like this before, so I was like, Really? (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, of course, he proved totally right. It's actually fine to get attached to this. The the being matures, the consciousness matures, and it lets go of that attachment. Don't worry about it. Go ahead. Enjoy it if there's something to enjoy. Oftentimes, the people that make a big fuss about getting attached to pleasure in meditation don't seem to make too much fuss about all kinds of other attachments that are in their life. You know, great food, a nice house to live in, you know, whatever else it is. And that goes unchallenged, and yet the attachment in meditation gets challenged a lot. I think that's a little backwards. Not to mention all the unhealthy stuff inwardly, the self-criticism, etc., that we can get attached to. Sometimes we, and please keep... a lot of this, in, as I keep saying, for the whole retreat, just keep it in, in mind as possibilities. Sometimes there's a sense of opening up and deepening in the meditation, and pleasure even, and it's unfamiliar, and fear comes up. And this is very, very common. Sometimes we're meditating, and the fear is really strong. And we're in very unfamiliar territory, and it's like, what is going on? Bring back normality, please. Um, that, that's okay when that happens. Just go to the fear and work with the fear in terms of being with the fear, as, as you probably all know how to do in terms of vipassana. But sometimes what happens is a kind of interesting in-between state. There's some degree of opening and enjoyment, and we feel like, oh, I'm opening into something new here, and there's pleasure, and the fear as well. And we've sort of got both things going on. Unfortunately, how often the mind gets pulled like a magnet into the fear... And does it have to? If the fear is not that strong, it's possible just take a step back. I've got two things going on. Not push away the fear, but just incline towards what's pleasurable, what's enjoyable in the experience, and just lean that way. And the very enjoying of it will help the fear to just 
subside. It's a matter again of an acquired taste of getting used to it. So slowly, slowly, it's like um, just learning that we can trust that in meditation. Sometimes that fear comes up because there is a softening as we do the metta and as the samadhi uh, goes. There, the self softens, the sense of self actually softens and begins to not completely dissolve, but just get less defined. There's less of a sense of a doer. And sometimes the fear that this brings up can be very strong, fear of death. It's very related to losing oneself at death. Very common, very important as part of the practice. And we're, we're learning different experiences of the self. We're learning to let go of the rigid way we've bound ourselves to a self-view, both through the samadhi and through the metta. And this happens and it's very important. Okay, just almost finished. Um, As this happens, the samadhi deepens, and there's less of a fixed, less of a sort of defined sense of self. There's actually more love that's coming out of the samadhi. So samadhi, you know, love comes from doing metta practice. Love also comes from doing insight practice if you're doing it well, right. Love also comes from doing samadhi practice. So as the samadhi deepens, the self softens. Love comes out of that, and it should come out of that. Love for the self love for others, love for uh, nature, for all things, for all beings. That's, that's a kind of mark of samadhi as it deepens. And I have known occasionally uh, people to be able to go into the kind of deep states of samadhi and actually do it without this sense of openness and receptivity and love. And what they end up with is something that's very fragile, so in one case, I'm remembering a person that was on retreat long-term, wasn't working with them, and they were here long-term, doing this kind of practice, but in a way that wasn't really receptive and open, didn't really have a lot of love in it. And then they hit uh, a quite, um, definitely very very challenging health crisis. And it all, the whole practice just went out the window, just completely crumbled. Part of partly the reason was it didn't have this softness in it, it didn't have that that love and that receptivity in it. They were actually going about it in the wrong way. But generally, the samadhi naturally has the love in it. Last point. It's the last of the objections. So we sort of talked about the tightness and working with that, the goals and the striving and the attachment, suppression. It came up this morning. Is it possible that if I just focus on something and I even feel good in that and just keep doing the metta, that I'm actually suppressing something that needs to come up emotionally, something in my psyche and the being that needs to come up? This is a, a very interesting question. It's a very delicate question. And I think mostly what I want to say is don't rush into an answer here. It's, it's very interesting what's going on. So, so just, can we really bring an investigation to this? I remember, at least 10 years ago, more, 12, four, I can't remember, I was at an evening class of meditation in the States, and 
there was some there had been a situation of a person that I knew who had been uh, what to say very uh, criminal was doing some criminal stuff and it involved me and and some other people and I was feeling really angry about this and sort of I had uncovered this over over time and there was a lot of anger around over a period of time really kind of trying to be with this anger and work with it and one evening at this meditation class was just meditating and there was some degree of samadhi nothing particularly deep or jhanic or extraordinary but just some degree of collectedness and into that the memory of this person the image of this person came up and i could it was very clear there was a lot of clarity there i could see the image came up and a moment of of the anger a moment of it but what wasn't there uh, was it, it didn't spark into anything bigger like usually it quite a big anger and a big whole feeling of that and it just came up and it was anger and then it just nothing came of it it's like nothing it was a spark that didn't ignite a fire this made a huge impression on me it's a sort of a story of a non-event but it's actually a huge impression it made on me and there was a work retreat in here a while ago dealing with some um, difficult experiences and she was also experiencing some samadhi and some calmness and i said to her when the samadhi's around take a risk drop in the thoughts of what's difficult just just remember what it is that's causing you difficulty and anxiety whatever it is just drop that into the calmness and the samadhi see what happens and she came back and she said i did and nothing happened dropped it in nothing happened nothing ignited nothing got built up what i realized and what she realized from that something that we take as a given as something that needs to come up in this case the anger i can't actually remember what her emotion was it needs us to build it up it needs conditions to be there and in that moment when i was in in the meditation it didn't have the conditions to create it so we can tend to think here's a storehouse of old emotions i'm trying very delicately i don't want to come down on one side or the other i just want to expose this area I'm not saying one i'm just saying have a look at it a bit more clearly we tend to think of a storehouse of old emotions here's anger and need to release it and need it to come up but it cannot come up unless the conditions in the present moment are there for it to come up and sometimes when we're really clear we can actually see this process that if we don't feed it in the present it doesn't come up it cannot come up when we see this over and over begin to see that some of the issues that we feel we have emotionally are actually in dharma language they're empty they're empty of inherent existence they don't exist by themselves they don't have self existence they need me to do something in the present they're not lurking in there waiting to rear their ugly heads in fully blown form it's not how it works we actually need to see this over and over and over for it to become really clear so usually we tend to think of samadhi as I'm I'm here I am trying to keep my samadhi together and trying to keep the metta practice I'm doing something I'm making something there 
as we go into it, we see that samadhi is actually making less and less. We're doing less and less. It's very, very interesting. It's not obvious at all. As we make less and less, we make less and less self. And there's more and more love coming out of that. We begin to see this emptiness of things. It comes out of the metta practice and out of the samadhi practice. Begin to see that things cannot be things without me doing something, without me actually faffing around a lot and putting a lot and building them up in there. And it's this seeing of emptiness in a very gradual way. It's not really a sudden thing. It's a very gradual, over and over. It's this seeing and understanding of emptiness that brings the deepest freedom in life and in our practice. And that's, that's something that is available to us through these practices. going to stop there. Are there any questions? Um, we have about, well, we have time before tea, so if there's anything about what I've said today, about anything someone else has said, or anything, an- anything at all about what we're doing. So. Can I? Uh, well, please, yeah. Getting the impression from what you're saying about samadhi deepens, maybe pity or not pity, we let go a bit more. That at some point we maybe let go of the phrases too. Yes, good, good, yeah. So I'll repeat this anyway at some point, but the phrases are really a crutch. Uh, so sometimes you're going to really need the phrases and, and the, f- the fullness of the phrases and this kind of steadiness of the phrases and the, the concreteness of the phrases. And as I said, at some point yesterday or today, if the mind feels quite scattered, even good to say each phrase twice, and you're sort of there for the first one, then the second one you go really there. As the samadhi deepens, or the feeling of metta deepens, you will find that your need for the phrases changes. And so sometimes you don't need any phrase at all, and there's a feeling there, and you feel warm, and there's, there's love. Just be with that. Just be with that in the body, and just let the phrases go. And it's a continuum. And you can be in this not saying any phrases as long as it lasts like that, as long as you can stay connected. When it fades, come back to the phrases. There's a sort of in-between when you might find the phrases can be a lot lot more light and a lot more sparse. In other words, uh, you can... What are the phrases again? May I be safe and protected? <laughs> <laughs> safe and protected. Safe and protected. So. Um, or may I live with ease? That's one of them. So, um, and that might become just one word. So instead of may I live with or may I da 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 or may you da da da, it just becomes ease. 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 And it can become very sparse, even, even less regular than that. Um, you can be very fluid. This is a very fluid very responsive practice. One of the skills in samadhi practice, one of the skills in metta practice, is responsiveness. So what is the way of using the phrases or leaving the phrases that's most helpful right now for you? That's it. And so there's, in, in the art of what's going on is this responsiveness to more, less, tighter, looser, and that, and that. Does that answer? Absolutely. Yeah, Thank good, good. It's very important, really important, yeah. Yeah, I asked that question yeah. And I understood what you said. Yes. But maybe I didn't. Okay. When you said, 
whatever it is that you don't know, if you're suppressing or not, yes. you might just wonder if there is something. Yeah. Or maybe it's a behaviour, let's say, that only shows itself in a certain situation. Uh-huh. Um, so how do you know if you have uh, dealt with it or not? Do you see what I mean? I know you said there has to be certain conditions for it to arise, mm-hmm. and otherwise it doesn't show itself. Yeah. And this is how I suspect that my mind works. I don't know. I can sit on the tree and then I come up. Yes. And the conditions arise. Yes, yes. Yeah, okay. So they, they have to be like in a certain specific mm-hmm. manner, mm-hmm. Yeah. expectedly. Yes. Yeah. And there it is. Okay. So, a couple of things here. One is just take a step back so this is a really delicate and for a lot of people it's a very sensitive question it's it's a really it's quite a charged question um it's sort of elu- very elusive it's, mind, yeah somehow. rather than saying it's like this or it's like this mm. assuming either that things pre-exist as a storehouse and they're waiting to come up or assuming that hey none of that's true and they don't exist and it's all empty which would be two extremes. Yeah. Just, I just wanted to draw attention to something that there may be much more to than at first seems. So not to kind of rush to a conclusion either way. In what you just said, it was interesting the language that you used. So when there's certain conditions, up it comes. Or, there, or factors. Right? Okay. Not, not so much a storm. Mm-hmm. Is there an assumption in there that here's this thing kind of prepackaged waiting? to come up so in other words what I'm saying is anger can't be anger a behavior can't be a behavior without us building it in the present moment Um, it was there and then it's gone this is what happens it's like um, there is nothing right and it's almost like one can't see Mm -hmm. and then in a certain situation, mm-hmm. yeah. and then when it, that situation is in there, mm-hmm. there's nothing. But it's not a storehouse exactly either. Okay. Or pre-packaged. Yeah. Maybe it is. Um, <laughs> Maybe it is that view. I think it's just an interesting thing to look at. I mean, so rather than trying to come to a conclusion now, it's like maybe, maybe you could just investigate that in one's life. It's, I think it's an ongoing question because sometimes the model of a storehouse and things needing to come up is really appropriate and really important and very much a skillful way of working. But to deepen in understanding in the Dharma, one of the most central things is actually deepening in understanding what are the conditions that build things in the present moment? And we begin to uncover that more and more as the practice deepens. Usually, it's not a way where we're used to looking. So we don't usually look that way. But to begin to actually tease them out and see, oh, okay, so what is, what is, what was actually contributing to that? It's something that, that takes time, but you may just want to keep it open right now and just explore and see, see what you see about it. Okay. okay. It just seems to go into hiding, and then how to make the mind more transparent, maybe. I don't know. Well, that's that's the assumption. Is it going into hiding? Now, sometimes maybe something is going into hiding. We are actually... It's just not there. Well, that's the question. Is it really not there? This is the one I don't understand. Yeah. Is it not there? Mm -hmm. And if we can just approach this with a very open, fresh 
mind, no preconceptions, and just see, am I assuming that it's gone into time? It's actually there, but I just can't see it. Or is it really not there? Is it really not there? And there are times in our life when we are actually repressing things and suppressing things. There's something around that we don't want to deal with, we don't want to feel, and it's pushing it down. But a lot of the times when things are not there, there's the assumption that they're in hiding or repressed or just out of the range of consciousness. And that's what I'm saying. Can, can we just approach that differently? Yes, giving it too much existence and just kind of scrap the whole thing, just start from zero and say, what's going on? You know, it's, it, okay, yeah. Well. Just something I'd um, like to share. Please, yeah. In order for me to be here, yeah. I have to uh, I have to put all of my stories about who I think I am on a back burner mm. for a while. Mm. And if they come up, I have to let it go. Because if I really believed those stories, I wouldn't be here. Right. You know, if I believed um, the kind of person I think I am... Mm. You know, my friends think I am, and, mm. um, and the fears around that, I wouldn't be here at all. Yeah. So I have to put it away, yes. just for a while, yes. and try and be empty around mm-hmm. it. Otherwise, yeah. it won't work for me. Yes. Good. Thank you. Yeah, and that's that's I think really really skillful, and uh, a beautiful thing to do. You know, just uh, someone was saying this to me in another retreat the other day I just want to put all that self-definition aside and just see what's what and put it away for a while maybe put it away for longer maybe you put it away and it comes back but if you keep putting it away over and over maybe when it comes back it doesn't have the kind of total convincingness that it seems to most of the time in other words sure it comes back but we don't automatically just totally believe that about ourselves, that we're like this, either how we're telling ourselves we are, or how other other people are telling us. And there's a sense of moving in and out of defining the self as practice deepens. So, of course, we live our life defining the self to ourself and to others, but we have times when we don't. And those are beautiful times and precious times you can't stay forever in a state of not defining the self. But if you do it enough and repeatedly enough, when you go back to defining the self, you just know, well, this is just a conventional definition and you're not bound by it, you're not, you don't feel wedded to it. Does that make sense? It's, it's believability is, is that much less. And it's just, yeah, sure, I'll define myself, I do this, I do that, I'm like this, I'm like that. But it's not imprisoning the being in any way. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, very beautiful. Thank you. Elizabeth, yeah. Um, you talked about that spark, that end of night. Yes. And get the feel to ignite. Yes. Um, this morning you were talking about kind of the seeds. Yes. Which kind of have these hot Yes, yes. But they need the conditions. Yeah. Um, uh, is it the same thing? Yes, very, very related, yeah. So... Yes, in fact, exactly the same thing. Very, very similar. So it yeah. feels like by the time I've got the hooks going, mm-hmm. all the fires, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then very little chance because I've 
there's no emptiness to be found. Like right, Jericho. yeah. So it feels like there's a lot of potential uh -huh. in the place where the, it's the seed just. Yes. Or the spark. Mm -hmm. Is this right? Yes, totally. So I it feels like a process that I'm trying to track. Yes, so it's great. Over time, what happens, the more and more skilled you become, the more you can actually catch that process of here Here they are, these little you know, things going out, looking, and, and they're looking for something. Before they've got their teeth sunk in something, you can actually just, oh, thank you very much, and we won't be going there. Um, <laughs> but don't feel, if you miss that moment, it's all, oh, you know, now I've missed it miss the train, have to wait, you know, for the next, uh, you know, have to sit this out. It's not quite like that. And actually, two things happen. One thing is, over time, you've seen it enough, and even in the middle of it, you know, well, this is a process that's, take it lightly, somewhat unreal. It's kind of created. I've, I've made this somehow. It's not as real as it seems to be. And just that knowledge helps to lessen its impact. Does that make sense? So that that becomes stronger and stronger, more and more embedded. We we believe less in the stories that hindrances and and uh, aversion, etc., is telling us because we've seen it over and over how they build things, how they want to make it, and we believe it less. So that helps diffuse, even if you're in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. Secondly, it's possible, even if you're in the middle of it, to find a way of working that's simpler, that's simpler. So. Um, well, for instance, just keeping doing the metta, very, very, very simple. You're just coming back to a very simple level. Instead of trying to engage with the complexity of this sort of raging fire, or the complexity of all this difficulty that's going on, instead of trying to address it at that level, trying to address it at a much simpler level, just keeping doing the metta, or staying very simple with that, or possible also to just be with the unpleasantness of what's going on. So once these hooks are in something, they're shaking something, it's probably going to be agitated and unpleasant. You can just feel that energetically, physically as an unpleasantness and just stay with that unpleasantness. It's a very simple strata of experience to be with. And if you stay there and just let it be unpleasant, you're not building it anymore. Does, does that make sense? So two, two ways there. That's, but, yeah. Good? Okay, great. Rose, yeah. I don't think there's one answer to that, unfortunately. I don't think it's that simple. In, in the course of practice and in the course of a retreat like this, it's more like, how willing am I to experiment with the whole range of, of it? Sometimes what really is needed is this, right, okay, you know, when the tough get going, 
What is it? The tough get going, the going get... <laughs> and the going gets tough. Thank you. Uh, you know, it's really just, you just stick in there and you just say, I'm just going to stick with this thing and I'm just going to see it out. And it pays off. And it's really, it really is a question of effort. And that's kind of one extreme. At other times, it's, it's more of a just, just allowing and really non-efforting and being very spacious and allowing. And that seems to do the ticket. And it's this, again, it's this responsiveness, this creativity, this aliveness of of response and, and relationship with the practice. And, and I think willingness is a really important word. Willing to try everything, even what we feel like, well, I don't really want to try that end of things. Yeah. Well, that can't be right, you know. Yeah. And it, it's not the case that one thing is always going to work. It's just not. One day, one hour, one approach will work, and the next hour, the very opposite. So it's more in, in this willingness to experiment and willingness to... Sometimes do what you don't feel like doing, and sometimes it's very much the opposite. And I wish it was a very simple sort of, there you are, but I don't think it is. I think it's really the whole, the whole range of that. But certainly the allowing, the spaciousness, the letting go is, is very significant. It can be letting go of a lot of aversion in that. Aversion has a lot to do with tiredness. And there's aversion around it's just very tiring. And so letting go, being spacious, actually... Uh, allows that to just let go and the sorry. letting go and being spacious, oh, being spacious yeah. uh, al- allows the aversion to go and then the mind can actually settle because aversion unsettles the mind mm. and tires the mind mm. so it's there's always more than one approach mm. and always always it's the case that it's not one thing that's going to just be what's working mm. you know, so. is that is that yes um Okay, yeah. It's still early days, you know, and you've you've had, you know, a lot of challenging stuff in in the life coming up to here. So, you know, you're settling in still. But if you keep that willingness around and that exp- and take care of the other piece that I said about nurturing a sort of base level of happiness and appreciation, that that may be as significant as efforting, you know. So, yeah. this is really important. So, when we think about samadhi, the whole picture is important and taking care of that nurturing appreciation gratitude etc very significant yes please Marie. just to go back to what you were saying about the hooks getting yeah. in and yeah. Yeah. recognizing yeah. that mm-hmm. and um, so I sort of for the last year or so managed to get that part but with the negative Good. mind states that you know oh that's what it is yes okay, that's you know let that go Good. But with the positive mind states that's come up in the midst of, you know, the phrases, yeah. uh, doing the phrases, and mm. then the mind goes to a positive mind state, mm. uh, um, to the face of somebody mm-hmm. that you, you, you know, like your child or something mm. like that, mm. should one still be, you know, how do you differentiate between letting that yeah. go and getting back to the matter? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is quite interesting as well. Um In a way, as as practice develops and deepens, it's a bit like riding currents. Like like a, if you see sometimes there's hawks around here, and you just see them kind of gliding and riding the air currents. And so, a positive mind state might come up: your child, a loved one, and there's love there. Now, it may be that that feels like a bit of a distraction, but it may be that you can also use that energy as something that feeds back so into the meta. More like, ah, oh, this is nice. You know, I don't need to. 
why should I go back to the meta because this is nice. Okay. You know. If there's meta in it, in other words, it goes back to the phrases as well. If if it feels like, well, here in this memory of this person is meta, then go go with that and and get, in other words, um, ride it as as a, a manifestation of meta or or, or uh, pull the meta out of it. D- d- does it make sense? Um, so there there could be a lot of meta in what you're talking about. It's not just a distraction. Similarly, this morning we're talking about. Um, sexual energy and, and when there's fantasy come up or whatever opening to that energy and allowing that feeling it physically instead of being so much in oh I need, I need, I, I want or so much caught in the fantasy it's an energy that one can actually ride and navigate it's not what seems like a distraction can actually be you can work with it So, so sometimes the mind moves and it is just looking for a distraction but then it actually doesn't feel that good so this is interesting again if you have the sensitivity to the body you can feel when it feels ah oh, this is actually good it's it's helping it's helping this good feeling and other times when it's just it's not really helping similarly when we're talking about eye contact and what Catherine mentioned in the opening talk and I said today, let yourself look and who you pass in the corridor and, and the, the, the lovely, not all the time, and you don't have to go around grinning at everyone. Um, <laughs> this is England, after all. Um, um, <laughs> but sometimes, you know, to let yourself do that, see if you can notice when it's coming out of restlessness and distraction and wanting just to entertain, and when it's actually coming out of just wanting to look and, and appreciate, and, and one begins in time to, to discern the difference. D- does that make sense? So it, may, it, it, it will be the case that in meta there are positive feelings come up. Just see if they can be kind of um, enjoyed and brought into the practice so that the meta itself deepens. And, and Is it Okay. Sure? Okay. Okay. Good. Let's have a bit of quiet together before tea. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.